Money FM 89.3. Best of breakfast. Breakfast special. Welcome to the Breakfast Show's Environment Special, Climate Connections. 11th March 2011. Two tsunami waves slammed into the Fukushima nuclear plant after a 9.1 magnitude quake off the east coast of Japan's main island. Three of its reactors melted down and operators had to pump seawater into them to cool the melted fuel. Associate Professor Patrick Martin from the NTU Asian School of the Environment cites earlier studies showing that radionuclides and debris released during the accident were quickly detected over 8,800 kilometres away off the coast of California. When the tsunami hit and the nuclear plant was damaged, there was a release, essentially an uncontrolled release of nuclear waste without having gone through any of this ALPS processing. And that led to the release of fairly significant quantities of elements that do not occur in those forms naturally in the environment. Fast forward to today, some 12 years later, over 1.3 million tonnes of nuclear wastewater have been collected, treated and stored in more than a thousand giant water tanks at the plant. According to Japanese authorities, that storage space is about to run out, leaving them no choice but to dispense this wastewater into the ocean. On August 24th this year, the Fukushima Daiichi plant began its first discharge of the treated and diluted wastewater into the Pacific Ocean, a process that is expected to take 30 years to complete. The operator says it has since safely completed its first release. Despite an endorsement by UN nuclear watchdog, the International Atomic Energy Agency, following a comprehensive assessment which took nearly two years, the plan has been deeply controversial both in and out of Japan. Professor Martin, who is a chemical oceanography expert, says that in such risk assessments, nuclear safety specialists consider a wide spectrum of factors, including potential harms. The wastewater has, of course, been in contact with some of the damaged reactor parts, so that means that there's quite a lot of different radioactive elements found in there. And that's why TEPCO is using this ALPS, the Advanced Processing Procedure, to remove the majority of these elements before there's any wastewater release. Now, of course, no process is ever 100% completely efficient. The main source of radioactivity, which is the tritium, as well as also some from, uh, I think, carbon-14, which can't be removed by the processing system. Now, interestingly, the majority of the radioactivity, if we just count the number of radioactive decays per minute, is coming from the tritium. But the tritium is actually a very low concern from the point of view of human radiation exposure. Because even though it's being released into the sea, even when we go and swim in the sea and eat fish and seafood from that area, the tritium doesn't contribute a very relevant amount of radiation dose. So when you read the risk assessment, it actually shows that the very low predicted radioactive dose that we might get is actually mostly coming from some of the other elements. Um, and that's chiefly radioactive iodine, radioactive carbon, and radioactive iron, as well as a number of other ones. And the relevance from those is that those are the elements that can accumulate a little bit in fish and seafood. So then the main exposure pathway is from ingesting that. Now, of course, one has to keep in mind the predicted dose is extremely low. 
So even for somebody eating fish and seafood harvested from within the exclusion zone where the release is happening, the predicted dose is still 0.03 microsieverts, which is approximately 100,000 times less than our annual background radiation exposure. Besides measuring the levels of radioactive substances, experts also take into account the structure of ocean currents. That's one key aspect that some American scientists have raised concerns about, as ocean currents could carry harmful radioactive isotopes, which are also called radionuclides, across the entire Pacific Ocean. Of course, ocean water is moving, it's not stagnant. And uh, these ocean currents are fairly well understood, fairly well studied, fairly predictable. So we can actually create models which exist for many different purposes, physical ocean models that can predict if you release a substance in a particular area, how quickly and by how much is that going to be diluted and where is that going to be transported to. Now, specifically around Fukushima, of course, we've got two major ocean currents and the modeling clearly indicates that the material will be carried out eastwards into the open Pacific Ocean. And again, we have models and calculations that we can do based on the concentrations that are predicted, you know, from how much is being released and how the physical ocean currents will dilute that. We can then estimate, uh, and really fairly accurately, how much of this radioactivity will then accumulate in different parts of the environment. So how much stays in the seawater, how much goes into fish and seafood, how much might accumulate in the sediments. From that, we can then estimate what does that then mean for a human using and living in that area or eating fish and seafood harvested from that area. So once we know how much radioactivity and from which elements there is in each of these compartments of the environment, we can then estimate, you know, for somebody who eats a certain quantity of fish and seafood from that area or for somebody who bathes in the sea a certain number of hours per year, how much of an estimated total radioactive dose will they be receiving. For years following the nuclear accident, no one wanted to buy fish from Fukushima and Japan in general for fear of radioactive contamination. But over time, that fear has waned. Statistics from Japan's fisheries agency show that there has been an upward trend of seafood exports over the past few years, with the total export value of seafood products in 2022 hitting about 387 billion yen, or about 3.6 billion Singapore dollars. But that all could change once again, with countries like China and South Korea slapping restrictions or bans on Japanese seafood. But Professor Martin remains optimistic, as data has so far been readily available, which could give scientists and consumers alike some confidence. We do have a, a decent understanding of where we can set sensible thresholds below which we expect no or minimal impacts, but above which we might start getting concerned about adverse impacts. And that holds equally for human health as well as for marine life. So again, the risk assessment has uh, boundary levels for where they would consider harmful levels of accumulation in the environment. And the monitoring data will simply tell us whether we're getting anywhere close to these. And very interestingly, Professor Martin also put into perspective the level of radioactivity we get on a daily basis. Radioactivity is all around us. It's a natural part of the environment. You and I right now contain naturally occurring radioactive elements. So as I sit, I am radioactive, right? As is everything around me. 
And this comes from geological sources. These are naturally present in rocks, therefore in, in soils, and therefore they get into animals and into plants. So when we eat them, they come into us. And in addition to that, we have cosmic rays. So from outer space, we have radiation sources coming and bombarding us constantly. And then, of course, we have human sources of radioactivity. So if we go and get medical x-rays and medical imaging, that's one of the main pathways for artificial radiation exposure. But also if we spend a lot of time flying. So when you're in a, in a plane, you're at higher altitude, you get more of your cosmic radiation dose coming in. Now, on average, humans receive about 2.4 millisieverts of radiation per year. In contrast to that, the risk assessment that's been done from TEPCO predicts that the, the upper level of radiation exposure due to the release might be 0.03 microsieverts. And that really is, roughly speaking, 100,000 times less than our natural background level. First of all, the fish won't be caught directly in the discharge area the way that it's actually estimated for the risk assessment. It's, you know, any fish and seafood products will be from further away. That's just a cautionary thing that's being applied. And any casual consumer who might once in a while eat a bit of fish and seafood from Japan, uh, certainly from any other parts of Asia, has absolutely nothing to be concerned about whatsoever from these very, very, very low radiation doses. In the coming weeks, authorities will be inspecting the facility before starting the second round of wastewater discharge. And while there remains some level of uncertainty, just like other nuclear scientists who have weighed in on the issue based on scientific evidence available so far, Professor Martin says there's no real cause for alarm. Now, we don't know very well when we release tritium as water, how much remains as water and how much becomes organically bound. Where studies have been conducted, the vast majority of the tritium has remained water rather than being organically bound. So for the risk assessment, from a scientific point of view, they would be well justified in simply assuming that most of it stays as the less harmful form of water. But in fact, they're being very, very conservative and making a worst case assumption that all of the tritium will be organically bound. So we already know that these doses that they're calculating are probably close to worst case scenarios, and that helps us to mitigate some of this uncertainty. So if I look at the weather forecast for Singapore, it will tell me that tomorrow the minimum temperature will probably be 25 or 26 degrees, possibly 27. There's uncertainty there, right? Maybe the weather forecast says 26, but it'll actually be 25. Now, none of this uncertainty makes me pack my woolly hat and gloves when I go out tomorrow night thinking, oh, well, the weather forecast is uncertain. Maybe it'll be minus 20 degrees. Okay, so we know fairly well the boundary of uncertainty that we have from these models. This was The Breakfast Show's Environment Special, Climate Connections on Money FM 89.3. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.